0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring its history and also its current energy, texture, and vibe, What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofits, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. If you've been listening avidly, you'll know that recent past shows have included a history of US presidents who came or who lived in New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn which until 1898 was its own city, the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and an episode on the history of bicycles and cycling. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, or the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. I know I keep threatening to do a show about punk, and I will one day. Or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. And, of course, each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Today we're journeying to a neighborhood that many New Yorkers think is kind of nondescript, but it really has its own unique history and its own special vibe. And I'm referring to Yorkville, which is on the east side of Manhattan. Yorkville, in case people are wondering, it goes from 79th to 96th Street and east of 3rd Avenue. Our first guest is a regular on Rediscovering New York, Lucy Levine. Lucy is a writer, historian, and New York City tour guide. She founded Archive on Parade, a historical tour and event company that takes New York's history out of the archives and into the streets. Lucy's collaborated with institutions, including the Municipal Arts Society, the Historic Districts Council, of which yours truly is a member, the New York Public Library, the 92nd Street Y, the St. Regis Hotel, and Landmarks West. Lucy offers exciting tours, lectures, and community events all over town. She is also the public programs consultant at Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts and contributing history writer at Six Square Feet. Lucy Levine, welcome back to Rediscovering New York.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so <coughs> I'm so glad to be here.
0: Tell us a little about your background. You're from New York originally, aren't you?
1: Yes, I am. Uh, I. Um, originally from the Upper West Side, where we are now, although I have lived in Yorkville, uh, and I am the public programs uh, consultant for Friends of the Upper East Side Historic District, so I do have a real connection to that neighborhood, and currently I live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn.
0: What kinds of work have you done in your career?
1: Uh, I have done a real grab bag of things. Uh, Principally, uh, I'm a historian and researcher and tour guide, so the bulk of my work is Uh, guiding New Yorkers and visitors uh, around the city and and helping them uh, see the city in a new way. I know that there's a story around every corner, and I love sharing that.
0: Was there anything in particular that inspired you to go into the the work that you do?
1: Uh, I've always loved history because I'm a New Yorker. You know, the the history of the city is in my blood and in my heart. Uh, And also, I really wanted uh, to do something that would help me connect with people uh, and share Uh, just human experience and human stories, because that's what history is. It's the um, study of human experience through time, and so being able to uh, just be part of that in my own life is something I really wanted.
0: Well, that's great. I agree wholeheartedly. It's not just about facts and figures, but about the people who walk the streets and uh, uh, experience the things that that we'd like to talk about. Um, Many people think of Yorkville as being kind of nondescript. In, In my business, in the real estate business, uh, Yorkville has what we call those white brick buildings. Um, but the history of Yorkville is actually very rich. Um, history of different European people who came um, uh, not that close ago. They were here for a long time. And their descendants actually go back centuries. Um, When did the first Europeans settle in what we now know as Yorkville?
1: So Yorkville became sort of a village, a playground for the very rich um, way back in the 18th century. Uh, There were these very large uh, and lavish homes. Uh, The only one that's still standing is, of course, Gracie Mansion, which is now the people's house, the, the home of... Uh, Our mayors, going back to Fiorella LaGuardia, excluding, of course, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. He didn't live there, but everybody else did since LaGuardia. Um, So that building uh, was built by Archibald Gracie uh, in 1799.
0: So it's actually older than City Hall is then? Yes. Um, You know, one interesting thing thing about uh, Gracie Mansion, and I just discovered this not that long ago, is... Uh, Alexander Hamilton was uh, uh, shot in a duel on the uh, hills of Weehawken and he was rowed back to what's now in the West Village. He died in front of a fireplace. That house is no longer there. But the mantle of that fireplace was actually moved to Gracie Mansion.
1: It absolutely was, and that fireplace uh, has a lot of history. It's not only the fire; it's not only the mantelpiece uh, in front of which, as you say, Alexander Hamilton died, but it is the uh, fireplace that hosted the very first Yule log. So, in 1966, uh, WPIX Channel 11 uh, aired the first Yule log footage, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was just hours and hours on loop of a fireplace. Uh, you know, with a burning log for Christmas. And that log, where was it? At Gracie Mansion. So that fireplace has sort of a, an eclectic history, if you like.
0: And it was in that, that was the same, the Yule Log fireplace was the Hamilton fireplace. Wow. wow. Yes. Were there local Lenape people living in the area when European people first
1: arrived? Um, of course. Uh, you know, the entirety of Manhattan Island and and its surrounding uh, area were, was all Lenape territory, yeah. Hmm.
0: What was Jones Wood, or Jones's Wood? Am I, am I pronouncing that correct? Is it Jones's Wood or Jones Wood?
1: Uh, Jones's, uh, keeping. Oh, is. It, it really is kind of keeping up with the Joneses because it was this pleasure ground for the rich. So as I said, um, there were many mansions there, of which Gracie Mansion was one. Um, and because this was sort of a country estate for the very wealthy it was uh at that time about five miles from the city as it was understood uh to be sort of this commercial center and so this was really kind of uh out in the country and so um jones's wood was What we would now think of almost as a country club, if you want, in the sense that it was uh, this clearing where, you know, they had uh, horse races, they had uh, bonfires, they had dances, they had, you know, kind of cultural activities, like if you want, uh, which I think is really fun, uh, a cultural center in in this uh, very rarefied uh, community.
0: When did did Yorkville begin to become something else aside from a country place? When when did it first start to have semblances of a village or of of what we would know as an urban setting, or sure. of, or of what they knew as an urban setting in the night in, in the early nineteenth century?
1: Sure. So the first time that we hear the word Yorkville uh, is eighteen twenty six, uh, and then going forward. Um, the growth of mass transit is really going to make uh, Yorkville what it is. And so it's so interesting. We, Of course, we just recently had the opening of the Second Avenue subway, and everybody's talking about how that really puts Yorkville on the map uh, transportationally. But that's actually uh, something that's been going on for uh, centuries. So by the 1830s, you have the very first uh, railroad connection to Yorkville, and that was the... Um, New York and Harlem Railroad. Those were the first lines being laid uh, in the area. And that really spurs development. Uh, And then uh, in the uh, 1840s and 50s, you get freight lines. um, And then in the 1870s, you get the elevated um, on 2nd and 3rd Avenue. And so uh, as transportation really proliferates in the area, you're going to get uh, sort of larger and larger uh, and more diverse groups of people Coming to Yorkville.
0: Well, of course the L, the Second and Third Avenue L's would have had local stops. Did the New York and Harlem have uh the railroad have have stops in Yorkville or were they just sort of through trains that went that went up Fourth Avenue and, and and went up to and went up north?
1: Um they were more th- through trains, more commuter rail from uh elsewhere, but there would have been stops, yes, in the uh, in the 90s, and then going down uh, further into what we would call, uh, you know, Midtown, and then, and then the, sort of the base of the financial district in Manhattan, so that um, there was a community growing around um, that railroad very early on, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so Yorkville gets developed, and like many uh, neighborhoods in the city, begins to, with access to transportation, you begin to get more people moving north for, mm-hmm. for better spaces and bigger spaces, including including immigrants. To a lot of people, Yorkville is known for its German immigrants and the German-American community who lived there. But there actually were more immigrants from a few other European countries who settled there even before Germans and German-Americans moved there in large numbers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, tell us about the Czech immigrants who moved uh, to uptown to Yorkville.
1: Sure, so there was a very, very large uh, Czech Catholic community. Uh, my favorite Czech Catholic, whom we never ever think of as a Czech Catholic, actually was Andy Warhol. That's why he lived there. Andy Warhol was a practicing Catholic for his entire life, uh, and he lived uh, in Yorkville and on the Upper East Side uh, for decades, and one of the reasons that was the case, he lived there um, in in the 80s, um, the, the blocks, the 80s, 86th Street. Um, Uh, I'm sorry, 89th Street, um, with his mother for years and years and years because they were practicing Czech Catholics. But of course the uh, Czech Catholic community goes back way further than that. Um, Actually the oldest Czech Catholic um, congregation is in Yorkville, Uh, Jan Hus uh, is the oldest Czech Catholic um, church in the nation. but yeah, the, the Czechs have a, a very interesting history uh, in Yorkville because um, something called cigar tenements really became associated with...
0: Cigar tenements? Are yes. So that tenements where people s- sat around smoking cigars? <laughs> no,
1: or? not smoking cigars, making them. Oh. Ah. Um, yeah, so uh, when we think about sweatshops, right, um, we think of um, sort of factory spaces, but a lot of the immigrants uh, at the turn of the century in New York City were working out of their homes, and the Czech Catholics um, or not necessarily Catholics, but the Czech community in Yorkville uh, very often were working out of their homes. And so those became known as cigar tenements uh, where uh, working Czech people would spend all day uh, making cigars
0: in their homes. Yep. So it wasn't like in Carmen in a big cigarette factory with. Uh, <laughs> no, no. no. Um, there were also large numbers of Hungarian immigrants. When did they start coming to Yorkville?
1: Um, So the Hungarians will start coming as basically as soon as uh, those 2nd and 3rd Avenue L's uh, are established, so will the communities sort of make their way uh, to Yorkville. And what's so interesting about uh, the Hungarian community is that um, as the Czechs uh, created community around their churches, so did the Hungarians. And one of the most uh, interesting Hungarian churches uh, in the neighborhood was actually designed by Emery Roth. It's the only ecclesiastical building that Emery Roth ever designed. And Emery Roth himself was actually a Hungarian. And so it's quite uh, sort of moving to see that he's able to take his own cultural heritage and, and really realize it in stone, which I think is really beautiful. And and that was the case with uh, so many uh, immigrant communities in Yorkville. There's a, a really sort of rich heritage of ecclesiastical architecture, um, with the Hungarians, with the Irish, with the Germans, you know, even uh, Jewish communities as well. Um, just really sort of stunning um, pieces of, of architecture.
0: When did, did Germans and German-Americans begin moving to Yorkville in significant numbers?
1: Um, so that will be uh, in the 1860s and 70s. So the first sort of iteration of, of Germans in New York, they'll come in the 1840s and they'll settle in what was Kleine Deutschland, uh, in what's now the East Village, uh, but as they became more prosperous, you know, the, the second generation is going to move out of what was then considered to be sort of a tenement area, um, at, you know, and up into more of a middle-class enclave. Um, so they'll come, uh, the 1860s and 70s and then, you know, into the 1880s and 90s and so on and so forth. And, and of course, you know, the, the German, uh, sort of stamp on the neighborhood is the one that's best known.
0: Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a very sad event that led to more Germans and German-Americans moving to Yorkville, as well as the rest of the history of Yorkville. Be back in a moment.
1: You're
2: listening to The Talking Alternative Network.
3: 24 hours a day.
0: Welcome back to Rediscovering New York and our first guest, Lucy Levine of Archive on Parade. We're talking about Yorkville. Um, Before we continue with the history of Yorkville, Lucy, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your business?
1: Sure. So I run a a historical tour and event company called Archive on Parade, uh, where I take New York's fascinating history out of the archives and into the streets uh, through fantastic uh, storytelling flair. So you'll get lots of deep research and lots of great stories. Uh, and that's what I love to do. And you can find uh, a whole host of uh, tours available on my website. That's archiveonparade.com Well,
0: great. Well, well, now we're going to continue with a very sad event which um, uh, actually uh, affected and impacted the cultural makeup of Yorkville and that was the General Slocum disaster mm-hmm. in 1904. Um, do you want to talk about that for...
1: Sure. Uh, That was the uh, largest disaster loss of life in New York City uh, prior to 9 11. It was just, you know, a stunning, stunning loss of life. Um, A number of uh, German, particularly women and children, had gone on what was essentially a a pleasure cruise on the East River um, and there was uh, a disaster on the boat and, and so many people perished, over a thousand people perished. It was just uh, absolutely horrific. And the situation was that people, uh, and they had all come from what was Kleine Deutschland, which is now the East Village. Uh, and the situation was that the, their family members couldn't live in the neighborhood anymore. It was just too haunting for them. And so in droves, you know, they moved up to Yorkville to be you know, in a different German community.
0: Well, and planted their seeds, and then uh, there's a cultural blossoming of, of, of businesses and, and of life. Um, speaking of life, uh, uh, Yorkville was known as an area of brewing, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. So the largest uh, breweries in the nation uh, were in Yorkville, uh, and you had competing breweries across the street from one another, which I just think is fantastic.
0: I'm looking at a picture right now, and hold on. our listeners can't see it, but holding it up in, in people in the studio, George Eretz Hellgate Brewery. The thing is enormous. It's bigger than any brewery I've even seen, you know, outside of airports and in other cities in the United States right now. Um when was it when was it open?
1: So the uh brewery opened uh in the 1880s uh, and at the same time it it really had um uh some intense competition uh from Jacob Rupert who's best known for uh the curse of the bambino. Um, he actually brought us the bambino. So that's pretty That's pretty fantastic. Yankees fans uh, can thank him. (laughs)
0: Hmm. Bambino being Babe Ruth. Indeed. Right, yeah. Um, How did the brewery shape the culture of Yorkville?
1: Um, So many of uh, the workers who worked in the brewery, and as you say, it was so large. It was the largest in the nation, and and there were so many in in Yorkville that were so large. Um, And the workforce was really local. They were not sort of, you know, outsourcing that work in any kind of way. And so uh, many of the people who were living in Yorkville were working in the breweries. And so uh, it really created this whole community around uh, those breweries. And then, of course, because there were so many people working locally, you know, there were... um, cultural destinations and restaurants and so on and so forth that were catering to them. So 86th Street became what was known as German Broadway and that, you know, has for generations been really the heart, the, the heart and soul of Yorkville and so you had, you know, the Casino Theater on 86th Street and it was um the Yorkville Casino rather. Um, you know, being one of the largest theaters in the neighborhood um, and just you had, you know, German singing societies. You just had this incredible Uh, array of businesses uh, that were catering to uh, the brewery workers. But, you know, those aren't the only workers in the neighborhood. My favorite sort of uh, working uh, story about Yorkville is that there used to be something called a piano ferry at the foot of 92nd Street. Um,
0: Piano ferry? You could take a ferry and listen to pianos, or was it...?
1: (laughs) If only, no, you could take the ferry to make pianos. So there was a large... um, contingent of the Yorkville community that worked in the Steinway Piano Factory in Astoria. And to get there, they had their very own transportation, their own ferry from the foot of 92nd Street uh, across to Queens, and it was known as the Piano Ferry. And so the the piano workers uh, would take it every morning.
3: Mm.
0: Well, one thing, too, that that a lot of people don't realize is that um, when uh, Germans immigrated to the United States, they actually were the most literate of any immigrants until that time. Most of them knew how to read and write. And so the uh, uh, trades that they found themselves in were usually not the backbreaking labor, but they were skilled labor that mm-hmm. required uh, a certain amount of education. So it's not a mm-hmm. surprise that uh, there were a good number of immigrants who worked, on, who worked making pianos. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a little bit of dark history in Yorkville, but also um, one where the neighborhood residents stood up for their better angels. In the 30s, Yorkville was the home base of the German-American Bund, which was the most notorious pro-Nazi group in, in the 30s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But when they marched it led to spontaneous protests by other residents. And because there were many German speakers, Yorkville also became a haven for refugees from Germany in the 30s, fleeing fleeing fascist Germany. And also refugees from the communist regimes in the 50s and the 60s. Very, very important part of the neighborhood's history. And the neighborhood is also the site of the annual Steuben parade. Did Jacob Rupert do anything else that he's known for, aside from uh, uh, becoming a part-owner in the Yankees and and, and signing Babe Ruth away from Boston? I have to always always rub that in the face of people I know from Boston, that we uh, got Babe Ruth away from from the Red Sox.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's what he's most beloved for in the city, but he was also a senator, you know, so he had um, a really sort of deep connection, not only to... uh, Baseball, but also to politics, and also to brewing, and and so he just kind of was an all-around, uh, an American, if you like.
0: Was he born in Germany? Uh, was he?
1: Um, his father had immigrated uh, to New York City in the 1830s, and so I believe that he was second generation.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, there are some notable buildings in Yorkville. People don't realize that they think mm-hmm. it's sometimes the impression is just like some old tenements and white brick buildings, but there are some notable buildings, uh, both residential and otherwise. Tell us about the Manhattan and why it was one of the first modern apartment buildings in the city.
1: Sure. So what's so interesting about Yorkville, and as you say, it is not uh, nondescript in terms of architecture at all. I've talked a little bit about the ecclesiastical architecture and how, you know, immigrant communities really sort of made uh, community in the built environment that way. But because there were so many immigrant communities uh, in Yorkville, it really became a... um, sort of petri dish for housing reform if you like um and so there were all of these model tenements being built in the neighborhood because the idea was okay you know the dumbbell tenements the old law tenements uh that were built on the lower east side you know it was it was pretty common knowledge you know that living in that way was just untenable and so the answer was okay how do we create you know uh, more livable quarters uh, for people to, to reside in. Uh, and the Manhattan was an early answer to that. Um, the Manhattan, the building yes, called Manhattan. On 86th Street, yep. Um, because it had things that uh, normal or older tenements would not have. So it focused on cross ventilation, it had you know double height windows, it had um, um, stairwells that were not crowded, it had Kinds of fire escapes that wouldn't break. You know what I mean? It was, it was much more um, livable than than other tenements. But the issue that they ran into was that because it was so well built, uh, it was more expensive uh, than. You know, other tenements would be, and so they, they really ran into this kind of catch-22 where they were creating this wonderful housing, but it was not uh, within the realm of what people who needed to live in it could actually afford. So they were building it as a model tenement for the working class, but the working class was never able to live there.
0: Hmm. Well, past mayor of New York grew up there, Robert Wagner. Yes. Um, actually, he didn't have far to go then. He became <laughs> there, he went to Gracie Madison. Yep, it's right, all in the neighborhood. Yep, right, Staying
1: right. in Yorkville, absolutely. Uh-huh.
0: Another uh, very important building and a very beautiful building that, that also uh, befell kind of the same fate was mm-hmm. the Cherokee Apartments. For those people who don't know them, they're between York Avenue and the East mm-hmm. River, um, seventy six and 77th Street, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, very, Actually really, really pretty. Um, what was special about the Cherokee when it was built?
1: So they were built uh, specifically to combat tuberculosis. So when they were built, they're now known as the Cherokee Apartments, but they were first known as um, the Sanitary Apartments, and the point was that light and air, uh, in this case, triple-hung windows, like truly, truly spacious uh, living quarters, would um, sort of alleviate this real threat of disease uh, that people really suffered in uh, traditional tenements because they were living on top of each other in this really, you know, difficult way. And so the answer was, okay, you know, how can we create space for people to live? And that was the that was the point of the Cherokee apartments. And they were actually... Um, funded by um, the Vanderbilts. And so it was this idea of, you know, like, what does charity look like? But in the in the same way, the Vanderbilts realized, like, okay, you know, we can't, housing reform can't be pure charity, right? We can't just kind of um, undersell these apartments so that, yes, people can live in them, but then, you know, they're not turning a profit. Um, and so they didn't do that. They said, okay, you know, we will um, basically rent them, at cost, and it was the same situation as with the Manhattan, that you had these incredible model tenements, but then they, they didn't serve the people whom they were built for because couldn't afford them. So, mm. you know.
0: And there, uh, uh, there are balconies and Juliet balconies on all of them. It's a really, really pretty building. The only um, uh, complaint that I get from clients is that there are no elevators. <laughs> they have to walk <laughs> up the steps. So uh, even though it's really pretty, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have that, that mod con. Um, were there many people who had tuberculosis who first moved in to, to them when they were built?
1: Um, yeah, so they were they were built for that reason. um, And those were Yeah, those were the first tenants were uh, people who um, had been tubercular or were overcoming that disease. Yes. So it did. It started out, you know, as a way to combat that. And then it became clear that, you know, people looking to escape the the threat of that just just didn't have that opportunity, really. But it started out absolutely as that um, goal.
0: Well, Yorkville was also the first uh, place where Andrew Carnegie's foundation built libraries. Do you Mm -hmm. want to speak briefly about the Carnegie, about Carnegie's libraries and about the first library that was built in Yorkville?
1: Absolutely. So as you say, you mentioned that uh, the Germans were um, among the best educated, you know, and most literate populations in New York City. And so the Germans traditionally really brought libraries to New York City, the first, I guess, being... Um, the Astor Library, John Jacob Astor being a German immigrant himself, uh, and then the first circulating library in New York City is the Ottendorfer Library uh, down in what was Kleine Deutschland, uh, now on 2nd Avenue, um, and that was financed by Oswald Ottendorfer. and so when Andrew Carnegie um, you know, agreed with the New York Public Library in 1911 to found all of these branch libraries, he founded 67, which is just a stunning number. The first one uh, was built in Yorkville, um, and and it had this incredible sort of German and Czech uh, collection as well as English. And the point was that if you're going to serve neighborhoods, if these are going to be like truly uh, neighborhood institutions, they they must reflect uh, the communities they serve. And that's something that the New York Public Library has traditionally been really dedicated to and really good at. And and really, I think is a model, you know, for. For how our public institutions should function, but but truly, it was a reflection of, you know, the citizens of Yorkville that they uh, they were readers, they were educated, they they really uh, valued that kind of um, experience, and so it it was really made manifest there. Absolutely. Hmm.
0: Well, we have about a minute left in, in our segment, and I want to move from education and libraries to things a little bit more base, <laughs> to things involving uh, stomach and taste and culinary. Um, what are some of the older businesses that that serve particular ethnic and communities in, in Yorkville, and that's still there to this day?
1: Um, well, Ore Washers is one of the oldest uh, bakeries uh, in Yorkville, which is so wonderful. Glazer's just closed, which was so sad. Um, but, you know, there are a number of um, German sausage uh, emporiums that you can still find uh, in Yorkville, and so you know there's there's really, if you're looking for those kinds of ethnic eats, you can absolutely uh, still find them, mm. which is really nice. Of course, Heidelberg is still there. In yes, the indeed, yes. of course.
0: Well, that's going to be a segue to our second guest after we take a short break. Uh, we're going to be speaking with the mm-hmm. third generation owner of one of Yorkville's oldest businesses, Lucy Levine mm-hmm. from Archive on Parade. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for visiting with us again on Rediscovering New York.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
0: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking
3: Alternative Radio, 24 hours
4: a day.
0: back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siakam. Tom specializes in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is a show about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague and friend at Halstead. You can listen to Vince's show on Tuesday mornings live at 9 a.m. And it can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like this show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, novel, I know, and also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman, NYC. If you have comments or questions or you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, Jeff at York.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we have a real treat for our second guest, Jeremy Schaller. He's a third-generation owner and president of the famed Schaller & Weber, or uh, those still with uh, who speak German, Schaller & Weber. It's a staple and hallmark of Yorkville for more than 80 years. A third-generation butcher, Jeremy has his hands full these days. After spending the last decade at Schaller & Weber, acquainting himself with every aspect of the family business, He's taken the reins as president and is heralding the company into the 21st century via new initiatives in branding, sales, and concepts like the Stube. In addition, before taking over the family business, Jeremy had years of experience in both the fashion world and event planning. He just opened up the third Stube location in Austin, Texas this past week, which I'm going to ask him about, and plans on opening the fourth. And Schaller and & Weber's first new location in 30 years, downtown New York in early October. And it's a pleasure. Jeremy, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. If you're a third-generation Schaller, you're probably a New York native.
2: Yes, I am. Um, born in New York City Hospital, right down the street in, on York Ave.
0: And you spent part of your life, a for formative years, in, in Yorkville.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I moved to Yorkville for college. I went to Pace University. Um, so when I was 18, I moved into my family's building on 86 and 2nd, um, got a small apartment up there and lived there for 22 years. So as a student, you
0: lived above the store. Above- I did. Wow, I did. It wow. was actually
2: a treat. I moved in for two years when I was 16 and 17. My uncle let me use it as a crash pad. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a little experience with that then.
0: Every uh, teenager's dream to have a crash pad in Manhattan. Yes, uh, I was quite popular at the time. Your grandfather started Challer and Weber in 1937 with Tony Weber.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What was his background before going into this business?
2: So his background, um, actually, he grew up in Germany, uh, in Stuttgart. And after World War I, um, he actually moved to Alsace-Lorraine because work was very scarce in Germany. And he be- learned how to be a butcher in a town called Metz. Um, a, t- a butcher took him under his wing. And then he moved back to Stuttgart, um, after he had apprenticed and he learned the business and then he moved up to, um, Hamburg where he got on a boat and then traveled the world. And then he landed in Germany and, and, or I'm sorry, in America. And, uh, as most German immigrants were, they all were coming to Yorkville at that time. So at that point, um, he got a job with another butcher and then he, um, well, he met up with another butcher who gave him a job on 89th and 1st. And um, that butcher went out of business. And then Tony Weber, um, his another partner, said he had a great location on 86th and 2nd. They shared the name. They shared his experience. And that's how Weber was born. How did he meet Tony? Did they work in the same place? Uh, Tony was an American. So he had the, he had the knowledge and he could communicate with the American customers. So he ran the front of the house, and my grandfather had all the butchering skills and ran the back of the house. He had all the know-how of the uh, meticulous butchering of German products. Um, he had a full line. He made over two hundred different meat, uh, beef, and pork products. So,
0: wow. Yep. Well, we should mention that in the, tr- in the tradition of Schaller and Weber, that Schaller and Weber became the first and only American sausage and meat producer to win multiple medals of honor at exhibitions in Holland and Germany. Yes. And uh, you, continue, you and your family continue the tradition because in 2000, Schaller and Weber Products entered 20 products in the Welser Volkfest of Austria and came home with 14 medals, gold and silver medals, another
2: first for an American charcuterie. Which is pretty amazing. I mean, we were up against all of the European brands at the time. Um, it became impossible for us to continue to compete in that competition after 2000 because the USDA made it very um, stringent to export meat products outside of, well, from America to Europe due to mad cow disease. So uh, restrictions cracked down on that and we could no longer enter the competition. But when we were there, um, we really dominated the competition based on our quality.
0: Hmm. Did your father assume the management of the business from your grandfather?
2: He did. Um, my father went to school um, in Connecticut. He he really had a good business background, and he was an innovator to the family business um, by introducing a lot of machinery. Um, he and my grandfather bought a factory in Astoria, Queens in 1960, and basically from there, they started getting into um, packaged meat distribution. Now we sell our meat products to everywhere in the country except for Hawaii and Alaska. Um, wow. But my father was an innovator when um, when w- we could take on more shelf life with meat products, um, innovation on mass production for the brand. So he brought a lot of different knowledge that my grandfather uh, had to the table. You have a background
0: in fashion and event planning. What was it that had you decide that you would take up the reins and get involved in the family business?
2: Um, Basically, out of college, my family's, um, I worked with the family business as a kid. Um, we all had to put in time linking sausages, working in the packing room, doing every step of the family business. Um, but when I graduated college, the, my uncle, who was running the company at the time, said to do something different for a couple of years. So I started working in the fashion industry. Um, I did that for about six years and um, then came back to the family business when a position opened up. And it was a good time and a good, uh, I had some good experience at that point.
0: When did you take over the management of the family business?
2: I took it over four years ago when my uncle passed away, Hmm. the same uncle. So he passed away. Um, At that time, he was mentoring me to take over the family business. And I was in a position to do that. And then um, really, I started introducing some of the innovation that he got very sick, and he was unable to uh, continue to operate in the business. So, that's that was my opportunity.
0: Hmm. Yeah. How many locations of Shaller and Weber are there?
2: So, at the moment, we have one um, for Shaller and Weber, but we're opening up our second one in October um, at Essex Crossing, which oh, yeah. is the new development downtown. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's the stube? So the Stube was a new business. Sorry, I'm the Stuba actually. Stuba, okay. yeah, it's sort of like the Schaller and Weber thing. Uh-huh. You know, Stuba, Stuba uh, Stube means small room in German. Um, so it was a creation that I made. Um, my partner in that, my best friend growing up, Jesse Dennis, and I created a little offshoot. There was a room at <clears throat> Schaller and Weber that was basically we were using it for garbage. There was no purpose for this room. Dead space in New York, which is. You know, it's time to make it valuable. Yes, foolish commodity to have, not
0: underutilized space, especially on 86th Street and 2nd (laughs) Avenue.
2: Right, right. So um, we decided, with the 2nd Avenue subway coming, to do a little hot dog stand concept to the street. Um, So not only did we just—I'd been to Berlin a lot of times and started getting this concept of currywurst— um, which is a popular German street food. Um, our, we do the classic bratwurst with sauerkraut and mustard. But we wanted to expand on that. So we started doing interesting innovations. We do like the Stuben and Rubin. um, We do a Bon Me inspired uh, sausage. We've incorporated about um, 10 seasonal sausages that we rotate out, always using our Scheller and Weber meats, um, but then doing fun, skilled toppings on top of them to keep it interesting.
0: Well, one thing I wanted to ask when uh, I, I read the, the, the background of the businesses is what you had you open up a location in Austin? I can guess. I've been to Austin a couple of times. I love it. It's mm-hmm. a great place. Uh, so, But why, why Austin and not anywhere else in the country?
2: So one of my really good friends, um, based in Austin, came to New York, and he was blown away by the concept of the Stubo. So he saw the concept. He was in finance. Um, he was in his 50s, and he said... I'm done with this, I need to do something more exciting, I wanna bring this concept to Austin. He got an investor, and now, well just this past weekend, we opened up our second location in Austin. Wow. Yeah, at 600, um, Sixth Street.
0: Well, people from Austin know a good thing when they see it. (laughs) They they do, and uh, and
2: they love meat. They uh, truly do love meat down there.
0: Well, the Texans, you know.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the best, I don't eat uh, mammal
0: meat myself anymore, but the best okay. uh, uh, barbecue place I ever was at was outside Austin, the Salt Lake. Ah, oh, amazing barbecue down um, there. T- unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move to Yorkville. Um, what is it that you like about the vibe of Yorkville? Describe the the vibe of Yorkville to you.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I lived there all in my 20s, all in my 30s, and... It, it's changed so much. Um, we dealt with a lot of hardship when they had the creation of, the, well, they were building out the 2nd Avenue Subway and put a fence in front of 2nd Avenue in front of our store for about nine years. And Wow, that's it, a big, big challenge. Mm-hmm. And um, just growing up there, it also, it really put a damper to 2nd Avenue. Um, you know, a lot of businesses went out of business. Um, It was sort of a dreary time on Second Avenue, Um, but it's all changed. The Second Avenue subway since it um, opened in 2017 has just been tremendous and has changed the entire vibe of the community.
0: Before the the subway sort of uh, dealt a death knelt to some businesses uh, and also impacted the neighborhood for the worse, what was the vibe like before that happened? What was what was special to you about York?
2: So it was it was so different. It was a lot of sports bars. Um, it was Eighty uh, Sixth Street had a more commercial feel to it, but in a different way. It was it was more. I was just in Brooklyn, in downtown Brooklyn, and I've seen that neighborhood change today. It was just tremendous. And you see better shops coming in there. It was like um, The Wiz. It was Circuit Cities. It was a lot of brands that are now non-existent at the time. Well, that are now non-existent. But um, I love that we have Shake Shack there now. We have Meatball Shop. We've got so many new brands that uh, it's creating a whole new atmosphere there. So with the, with the introduction of the construction of the
0: second Avenue subway till that, that really changed the neighborhood dramatically, both, both during and after.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's definitely raised the quality of the neighborhood um, for you from a real estate standpoint. I mean, and for myself, just what I see the neighborhood, the value of the neighborhood, um, it still has a lot of the ethnic values that it used to have, but it also has this new vibe to it. Um, there's this great new bar called Ethel's that's a, a fascinating place. Um, Is that on 85th Street? Or, uh, yeah, it's oh, on 85th and 2nd. Uh-huh. It's a rock and roll bar. Um, it just has a great, great vibe to it. Um, it's exciting. Hmm. Yeah, you'd never think places like that would have opened around that neighborhood.
0: Oh, no, when uh, I hosted one of my walking tours in Yorkville a couple of years ago and I had to go out and scout out a place to, and I was, I was surprised at the number of places that were really great and uh, I actually picked one across from... Uh, Ethel's, it was on the northwest corner of 85th Street. I forgot the name mm-hmm. of the business, but we had, we had our event there. Um, you know, the Yorkville that I, I'm 58 uh, going on 59. Um, the memory I have of Yorkville when I started to come of age and going to some concerts and just hanging out, is there were still like older German people, and I remember going to one church concert, and there were a couple of women with you know buns and, mm-hmm. you know their uh, the blonde hair had faded a long time ago, yep, and there were some other uh uh, uh businesses that aren 't there anymore, like the ideal diner, yep, like I remember there was one waitress there who also fit that bill pretty well. I forgot her name, but she was uh she was an old battle axe
2: oh yeah, uh, <laughs> quite a few of those, yeah, there's still one or two.
0: And of course, you know, whenever businesses close, um, even though new businesses open up in their places, and that's just part of the the texture of, of life in the city, uh, we always feel a sense of loss for the ones that closed that we may have liked and that were part of our lives in some way. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy Schaller, third generation business owner and president of Schaller and Weber. Stay tuned.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
4: The best designs for your life start...
2: talkingalternative.com
0: We're back with Jeremy Schaller, who's actually the third-generation owner of Schaller and Weber, or Schaller und Weber, for people who know it well. You um, know, a couple of the businesses that are still there. One of them is Heidelberg, which I still really like. They have a really good uh, jägerschnitzel, which I enjoy It's chicken. Um, do you know if most of your customers to the store are still live in Yorkville, or do most of them come from outside the neighborhood now?
2: So that was a very, very um, difficult challenge that I had when I took over the business. Um, four years ago, when I did take the business over from my uncle, he kept everything running status quo for about 25 years from the last renovation of the store. Um, people loved the store. Um, it was, if if people that know it um, recall, it was very cluttered. Um, it had... Kind of a old world
0: in that sense. So. Very,
2: very old world, but... Um, to the point where some German customers of mine that were, like Kurt Grutenbrunner, who's a very uh, popular uh, Austrian restaurateur in Manhattan. He, and a mentor to me, he told me, you, you've got to do something with this place. It's dusty. <laughs> and, um, and it kind of was. It had a, I don't want to say anything from the nostalgia of what it was, but it, it could use a, a facelift, a brush up. And I knew that we also needed to attract a customer base that was not only our old German customer base, but that was the residents of Yorkville. So one big um, challenge of what I did was I turned it from more of this Eastern or German uh, European specialty store into a mixture of that and a very approachable store for a younger Yorkville customer. Somebody that just moved into the neighborhood that wanted to walk into the store could find all these European delicacies, but also just things that they needed in like a um, an environment that they would just like to shop and that wasn't um, something that they would be intimidated by.
0: It wasn't stodgy. It was. It, it spoke to them exactly, yeah.
2: oh. and it still kept the interest of the old Germans. So with that, which was a huge challenge because the old Germans just hated it because that's kind of how they are. Any kind of change, they are immediately opposed to it. But um, eventually, I won back their trust. and well, the Especially German- if you had the
0: product that they like to eat. That, that, that's,
2: uh- that was the thing. We kept all of the great German products. We never took anything away, but they just felt like I did when I brought in some new local products and things like that. But, um, so now they're all happy. And we've really brought in a new clientele that is the local people that live in Yorkville now.
0: Well, you have to do that to have a successful business. I mean, I'm in a, in, a, in a customer service business, and I've been in marketing and advertising for most of my career. Uh, you have to really uh, – you, your potential customer base is always evolving, right? and you have to speak to them. And, of course, Yorkville has uh, uh, had a big change. In fact, a lot of younger people have moved to, moved to Yorkville when rents were cheap, especially when the subway was being built the second avenue subway was being built that's you know that's who moved into the neighborhood it was known as value mm-hmm. well how do you get the interest of those people and, exactly um, uh, you want to talk about your uh, web address for a second it's
2: uh, sure it's www.challerweber.com S-C-H-A-L-L-E-R, r.com um, we do all of we can mail order all over the country and we send our products to any state in the nation and um we've done very well with our online business um, we sell a lot of german specialties you can't find anywhere else as long as well as all the schaller and weber products mm.
0: well jeremy you talk about the uh having you know evolved the image of the business um i when i went online to look at the website uh, i was expecting the old the, the schaller and weber that i had always heard about and known but indeed mm. i was uh it's 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 new it's um it's very creative. It's very, Thank you know, you. It, it just draws you in. It's not, you know, it's not the, the I don't want to say stodgy to say your family business was stodgy, but not right. the old, you know, old grocery. Yes. In fact, the, the Schaller and Weber that I sort of remember, I've been in a couple of times, but um, even I know, I know someone. He lives right here on the Upper West Side, Bob Shipman. And mm-hmm. uh, Bob told me on one of my tours a while ago that he uh, has fond memories of in the 40s, his mother taking him to Schaller and Weber. And buying stuff. And one of his favorites was the labor casa, Mm -hmm. which is the liver cheese. And he would talk about uh, how the person behind the counter would give him a little slice. (laughs) Sure,
2: sure. We still do. We Uh, still do to the kids. It's um, something that's nostalgic that we hold on to.
0: Would you have any special advice for anyone who's looking to open up a business in Yorkville now? As long as they weren't a competitor to yours directly, obviously.
2: Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, as business goes, location is key. Um, there's so much, I would say being close to, uh, one of the new subway stops is a very, very important decision to be made. I mean, the um, entrance is right there, right? on the. On it's right the there it. for us. But <laughs> if you're opening up a new business, finding a good location near, um, one of the subway stops is, would be a good business decision in my opinion. Um, especially if you need some great foot traffic, but yeah.
0: You're opening up other businesses. Um, you're going to open up one downtown and you have two in Austin now. Do you ever see yourself opening up another business in Yorkville?
2: Um, that's an interesting question. Um, we're trying to expand today. I actually looked at a location in DeKalb Market. Um, so we're, we're thinking about Brooklyn as the next step for the Stuba concept. Um, opening up another location in Yorkville. Um, we're opening up a private event space within our current business. Um, location that we're going to do private dinners in. Do
0: you have room for it? We do. <laughs> oh, we do. Okay. We just
2: fixed up our backyard and added a another uh, kind of event party room in our basement. So, people can rent it out and it's another little side project we're doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You talked about the struggles that you and other business owners had when the subway, when the 2nd Avenue subway was being built and uh, that, you know, mess of a of an environment. Of course, it sure. turned out well. And also the sort of the rebirth of, of the street in the neighborhood since since the construction was done. Um, post-construction, uh, is there anything that you struggle with in Yorkville now? Anything not having to do with, with subway construction? Some, something that
2: challenges you as a business owner to try to to do your work in, in the neighborhood? Well, there's always something that pops up as a business owner. Um, lucky for us, the last two years have been a godsend, and that is all due to the Second Avenue subway. Our business is up are 20% um, since the opening of that, and I'm sure there'll be other you know issues. There always are as a New York business owner. Um, we're doing a renovation of our building next year, so of the apartments in our building, so that's gonna be a big challenge. Um, and I'm sure it'll bring on its own set of events as well.
0: Is there anything about Yorkville that surprises you anymore? Uh, it's,
2: it's surprising how well the city did with uh, the the way that they built out the Second Avenue subway. I was just overwhelmingly impressed. All the Chuck Close art down there is beautiful. Um, the new escalators are beautiful. The elevators are beautiful. It's just overwhelming. It's fantastic.
0: And the art in the subway system. I mean it's they're not Van Goghs and Degas, but they're re- it's really really be- for yeah. public art, it's really really beautiful. It's impressive. Yes. Is there anything you wish that you wish was in Yorkville but that is not right now? Um, a particular kind of business or just something service or something else that you would like to see in the neighborhood?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I we're always looking for new things to to come to the neighborhood. Um, right now, if you're somebody that's visiting or experiencing Yorkville for the first time, just explore it. Um, check out Carl Schertz Park. Um, walk around to see some of the old buildings. It's an impressive neighborhood. East End is beautiful. Um, York Ave is a beautiful street. Um, we're always open to new businesses coming around and, and business feeds off one another and it's just a neighborhood thing, so oh. yeah.
0: Jeremy, thank you so much for your time and coming on Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff. We've been chatting with Jeremy Schaller, third generation owner and president of Schaller and Weber on 86th Street and 2nd Avenue. Uh, And I don't eat meat anymore, but I hear the meats are fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the Law Offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier, who could not be in the studio tonight due to recuperating from a broken arm. We wish him well. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.